from the book of Exodus chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry, cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then who shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. The word of the Lord. From the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 10, starting with verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by the snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The word of the Lord. The gospel according to St. Luke chapter 13. 
Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should I use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I will dig, it around, dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Good to see you all this morning. Again, happy Lenting to you all. We are in the third week of Lent. We've got a few more Sundays to go on this one. Um, we have been looking over the past few weeks at some of the major themes that we see in Lent. Lent means, and you may have figured this out already, Lent means different things, and it seems like different themes come out each year that are maybe slightly different for us. We see different themes in the church calendar and in the readings and those kind of things. Different traditions emphasize different parts of Lent. First of all, the first week we looked at um, the idea of temptation, we looked at the desire to worship other things other than God. That temptation is really, when we talk about temptation, we're talking about worship. These times that we're tempted to worship other things or to move away from God. Then we looked last week at doubt. We talk about doubt quite a bit around here, but we talked about also what does it mean? What's the difference between doubt and then also the choice to turn away from faith, to give up on our faith? In that, we discussed how God's posture towards us, no matter what we do, is always love. That God always looks at us with love. He always desires relationship with us. Today, I wanna to look at the formation that happens in Lent. During Lent, we talk about sin, we talk about temptation, all these things. But something happens in us in Lent. Something changes in us. When we stand in the presence of God, we are formed. The season of Lent is not a funeral dirge, okay? It's not shaming. It's not a time for shaming and beating up on ourselves. I'm so bad. I'm so awful. Some people treat Lent that way. No, this is a season where we intentionally come to the end of ourselves in order to allow God to change us and to make us in his image, who he has created us to be. And that change that happens is something holy, that when we're changed, it's unique. The word holy just means like set apart or different that that change that happens is unique, it's different. And we've talked about this before, like um, in any kind of formation, anything that we do over and over again as a habit, that thing will shape you. So many of you have found like when you eat a certain food over and over again, it literally shapes you. <laughs> it shapes who you are, right? Or also when you go to the gym over and over again, it shapes you, it shapes and forms you. Something that's a little bit more subtle than that is when you binge watch a particular show on Netflix, you may not know it or see it, it can actually form you. When you do the same thing over and over and over and over again, it changes neural pathways in your brain, it forms you and it shapes you. 
Some things are good, some things are bad, some things are neutral, but they shape us and they form us. Um, But formation in the way of Jesus is a bit different because we see today formation in the way of Jesus happens on holy ground, or we could say in sacred space. It forms us in similar ways to all those other things, but it is different in that something happens on holy ground. There is part of it that we may never fully understand. There is an interlocking of heaven and earth that happens in the life of a disciple. We are in some sense called to something that is beyond our reach, that it is out of our depth. You think about um, a child who cannot yet swim in the deep end of a swimming pool because they haven't quite learned yet to swim, That, that we're now in grace, we're into something that is beyond our depth, that on our own, we can't do on our own. It's like after service on Sundays, when I try to stand on these tables to hang up those lights or those plugs that go up there, and I go, I'm just not quite tall enough. I need that step stool. David Wally can get on there and could do it really easy. But for me, it's hard. We're in grace in the formation of God. There is something beyond our reach. There's something out of our depth that's happening. Our Old Testament passage today continues the story of Moses. And you may know this guy, Moses. If you know anybody in the Bible and you know their story, you probably know him, uh, at least with the Ten Commandments movies or the movie or Prince of Egypt or something like that. You have some, we have some cultural understanding of who Moses is. So you know some of his backstory. He was born an Israelite, but when Pharaoh threatened to kill all the Israelite baby boys, his mother sent him down the river in a basket. The basket was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter who raised him in her house. Yet Moses retained a sense of loyalty to the Israelites. So one day when he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite, he reacted. In fear, he reacted and he reacted by killing him, killing the Egyptian. And then when people found out about it, in fear, Moses fled to Midian, which was a faraway shepherding community. There he met a woman, he settled down. So Moses is this guy with a mixed up tribal identity, okay? Born an Israelite with some loyalty to the Israelites, raised an Egyptian in Pharaoh's household, and then now he's like a Midianite. <laughs> and in our story, we catch him, he's, he's working for his father-in-law, okay? So he's in that place of life, <laughs> okay? He's, he's settled in, working for his father-in-law, going, okay, I've, I've settled here, I'm a Midianite, but I have these other tribal identities as well. He's all of these things. He's Israelite, he is Egyptian, he is Midianite, he's all these things, and he feels that. In fact, he feels it so much, he names his son, I am a stranger in a foreign land. That's what he names his son, okay? So you can tell that's in him, that's who he is. On the surface, Moses seems disqualified for everything. He can't really be an Israelite because he spent time in Pharaoh's court, in the oppressor's court. But his loyalty to the Israelites keeps him from really claiming that he's Egyptian. And now this Israelite Egyptian has settled down and married in Midian, and he's taken on the vocation of a shepherd. In our story, we pick it up, and he's literally wandering in the desert. He is a man without an identity or a home. He's a shepherd in the desert. Now, this desert is kind of different than some of the other ones. This desert does have some green places, okay? So it's not quite like the Sahara Desert, and, but it's also not quite as green as like the California wilderness. It's somewhere in between. So you have to learn as a shepherd where the grassy places are. 
So he's in the desert and he's looking, taking his sheep. We've got to find the next grassy place. Got to find the next place that's near water. Sometimes you have to travel a long ways, sometimes several days to find the grassy places. So that's what he's doing here. He's looking for a grassy place for his sheep. And God does something on holy ground. It's something that God has prepared Moses for. On the surface, it seems like Moses' mixed up background disqualifies him from anything. But it's actually here, his mixed up background and God's faithfulness to him throughout it that qualifies him for God to use him. Weakness becomes strength on holy ground. Those things that we think disqualify us, that are weaknesses about us, that we just wanna hide and forget about, on holy ground, something changes with that. In God's presence, something about that changes to where weakness becomes strength. God calls Moses here through a bush that won't burn up. So this is an interesting picture. It's a normal bush. We think it's like a spiky acacia bush. But on the other hand, the the physical properties have been suspended, so it won't burn up. So we see here a sign of an intersection of heaven and earth. We have this earthly, real kind of bush here. And then we see the presence of God in such a way that its physical properties are suspended. And anytime we see one of these heaven meets earth moments, we have to ask ourselves, what is God doing here? What is he up to in this moment? God's first words to Moses are so interesting. I don't like them when I, when I read them at first because I go, what are the implications here? God tells Moses to like stay away. That's his first thing. I don't, I don't like that. It doesn't fit well with my theology because I want God to be the just y'all come God, right? Like y'all come here. Like don't even worry about anything. Don't worry about your shoes or your clothes or whatever. Like this is who you are. But something here, God says, keep a distance, stay away. God's words intentionally convey a mixed message. Come near, but be careful about coming near. Come close, but something about you is going to change as you come close. It's not a willy-nilly thing. Like something as profound is about to happen in you. It's a paradox message, but it's not inconsistent with the story of God's people. God is saying, you are to draw close and understand that this thing you are drawing close to is beyond your experience. And so it's going to change you profoundly. This is how we approach faith. Our God is the one who embraces and loves just as we are. And that love is so powerful that when we come close, it's gonna change everything. We ought to be careful if we're not prepared to upend everything in our lives. God tells Moses that he's heard the cry of his people and he's concerned about them. And he has a beautiful land for them. And then in the crazy turn of events, he says, and I'm sending you. So Moses has a bunch of questions as you would. He says, first of all, who am I to speak to Pharaoh? You know my mixed up background. You know the challenges that I've had. You know Pharaoh's and I's relationship is not great. Like, who am I to speak to? And God doesn't, or who am I to speak to him? God doesn't directly answer the question. So instead of saying, well, Moses, this is who you are. I'm going to tell you, you're awesome, Moses. You can do this. you, you, You got this. God does something different. He says, I will be with you. In other words, that's who you are. I am the one 
or you are the one who God is with. I am with you. But Moses isn't really satisfied with that. He says, okay, so what if I go to them and I say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, well, what's his name? What should I tell them? Say, God, tell me, what name should I give them? What God are you? And God says, I am who I am. So that clears it all up, right? No. Who, who is God? What is God's name? Well, God's simple name in the Old Testament is Yahweh, but that name is anything but simple. God has identified himself here as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He points back to his activity, his events that he's done. But this is different. God uses the phrase, I am who I am, is similar to, I will be what I will be. God has already used that verb in telling Moses, I will be with you. But what kind of God is he? He is saying here that he is the God who will be there. He is the God who will be with his people. He will be whatever is necessary to be in different contexts to achieve the purpose announced to the ancestors. He will be that. He is that. Now, in our lives, when we say, I am, we usually follow that up with something that we're describing, right? So we say, I am a husband, or I am a wife, or I am a father, I am a mother, I am a teacher, I am a musician, I am a nurse, or, or we just say our, our name. <laughs> I am Preston. We're saying, you can identify me, you can categorize me using this thing. But God doesn't give Moses a name for himself. God is saying, I am not fill in the blank because he's not dependent on anything. There is no category in Moses' experience that God can fit neatly into. He is before everything, and therefore there's no box that we can create that can fit God in. At the same time, it's a way of saying, I am consistent. He is the same God who called Abraham. He is the same God who's present with Moses, and he will be the same God who will deliver them from slavery. I am primarily indicates presence. I am the one who is present, the one who is near. Jewish theologian Martin Buber um, elaborates on the translation of this passage. He says, I am that which reveals. I am that which has being here, nothing more. I am that which has being here, nothing more. The eternal source of strength flows. The eternal touch is waiting. The eternal voice sounds like nothing more. Presence is part of the essence of who God is. This is so important. Our God is not distant and flighty. Our God is not a God who stands far away and waits for us to get our act together. Our God is the one who is present who's near. And that's part of his defining reality, who he has revealed himself to be. Therefore, we are to be a people who reflect the nature of God. We are to be a people of presence in the world. Who is that coworker who sits next to you who is in pain? In what way are you simply present? You don't have to come up with the right Bible verse to fix their situation. That's not your point. That's not your goal. In fact, don't try to do that, okay? Like your point, your goal, your, who you're called to be is to be present in their pain. 
to be with them. It is God's presence that brings life and healing and empowerment and hope. And we are called as reflections of that presence. Names really matter in scripture. Um, When we name our kids today, a lot of times we think about the meaning. A lot of our meaning is profound, but we also just kind of like how they sound, don't we? Like we like names or they, you know, they bring some commonality to us. In scripture, names are incredibly intentional. Like they mean something really specific. So here, God's name in verse 14 is I am. Well, there's another book in the Old Testament called the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is unique among the rest of the Old Testament because God's name is never mentioned throughout the book. In fact, some people have read it in literature and gone, this isn't really a book about God. It's in the Bible, but what is going on here? Like this, because God's name is never mentioned. But the author is not saying that God is not active in the book. In fact, the story, God is very active in the book. But it was a stylistic device to show the reader that the Jews of Esther's day had become largely paganized. They had given up on God, okay? So God's activity was not explicit. It wasn't named. And so it was this stylistic of advice. We're not even gonna mention God's name because the Jewish people were so far away from God. They had moved themselves so far away from God. So many people believe that the author of Exodus is doing something similar here. Yahweh's name is not mentioned in this passage because God's people have been far away from him. So what's happening is the children of Israel are in slavery in Egypt, and not only has Egypt forgotten Israel's God, Israel has forgotten their God. Maybe they've turned to worshiping other Egyptian gods. But here, God shows up. And he says, even if they have forgotten me, I have not forgotten them. Even if they have given up on me, I've not given up on them. I hear their cry and I am here. I am the one who was to their ancestors. I am the one who is here now in the burning bush. And I am the one who will be here in the future. What does this have to do with us? Well, I wonder if this helps us in times of desert in our lives. Perhaps you at times have felt far away from God to where it's like, I don't know that I can even utter God's name right now. (laughs) I feel so far away from him. Or you've made choices that have led you far away from him. In those times, he doesn't go away. I love when the Psalms say, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. In fact, one of the translations of that is, if I make my bed in the depths of hell, you are there. What? Basically, the idea is there is no place I could go that is so dark or so broken or so far away that God does not pursue me with his presence. That's our God. God uses Moses to do amazing things, but he always uses him in his weakness, not in his strength. Moses is dependent on God. And then as we read the story, and sometimes our movies betray this, but Moses is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story who uses Moses in his weakness. And then we have this quirky gospel passage today. I I know it's weird to say that the gospel is quirky, but it feels quirky. It feels odd today. Um, Our gospel text seems kind of convoluted to 21st century eyes. So we have this guy Pontius Pilate at this time, and he was a brutal governor of Judea, okay? 
He did all kinds of bad stuff. In fact, he did a lot of bad things that we would think he did just to tick off the Jewish people, all right? Once he tried to bring like Roman military emblems and standards with all their pagan imagery, he tried to bring them into Jerusalem, into the holy city, even near the temple, which was like awful to the Jewish people. He's like he was rubbing their noses in his power. He flouted laws and conventions. He once took the money that was designed for the temple treasury and he used it to build an aqueduct, a Roman aqueduct. Jerk, man. And then there was a rebellion when he did that and he wiped out the rebellion with his military, okay? This is not a good dude, Pontius Pilate. And one of the things that's going on at the time was several of the political groups in Judaism believed the only way they would be free from Rome, they'd be free from oppression, was to rise up and overthrow Rome. So there are a bunch of political groups and they're all going, we gotta figure out how to get a rebellion together that actually works, that actually overthrows Rome. So there was a heightened sense of nationalism. There were all these different political groups who had different ideas about the best way to do this. So for example, you had the Pharisees and they thought, well, if we're really just holy enough and we follow the law enough and we exclude the people who are bad people, then we're really gonna be good enough that God will rescue us. But then you had another group called the Zealots who looked at the Pharisees and they were like, eh, that's fine, but it's easier to just kill them, right? <laughs> so they would carry cloaks and their daggers and they would, you know, kill Roman centurions when they went by. And so they're using these, these tactics, this nationalism, we're going to overthrow Rome. And the temple at that time was the center of Jewish power. It was all that they had control over. We have control over the temple. Jesus had been warning them throughout his journey to Jerusalem about how these things that they're doing don't work. They can't trust in the temple systems. They can't trust in their ethnic laws of separation. They can't trust in their military strength. And here we learn this story. It's kind of a throwaway line at the beginning of the passage, but there's some Galileans who went to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices. And Pilate's army showed up, probably afraid of a uprising, and just wipe them out. So these people came, offer sacrifices, Pilate's army shows up and just wipes them out. Now we have Jesus, who's also leading a group of Galileans from Galilee to Jerusalem. And he tells this group, you can't trust your own strength. You can't trust your military strength. You can't trust your laws that you've created. You need to repent. You need to turn to God and see what he's doing in your midst right now. Jesus said those Galileans who died, who Pilate killed, they weren't any worse sinners than anybody else, but they're a sign that we can't trust the sword. We can't trust military strength. You can't trust your own ways. And if you don't die by the sword, he says, you may be destroyed by the literal toppling of the holy city. There was this place called Siloam that was near the center of the city and it had toppled, it had fallen down and it had fallen down on people and that's part of how they died. He's saying your city, your holy city that you built, that you have control over, that's a symbol of your power, it's literally falling down and it's going to kill you. Then Jesus tells this parable about a tree that will not bear fruit. Jesus is speaking about Israel here. There's still no repentance. Israel still clings to their temple systems and their nationalist identities and their violence. He says, there's just a little time left for you to repent. 
for Israel to repent. We talked about this at small group a bit on Wednesday night. And, but there's something important to remember about this passage that's historical that we don't see on the surface. In 70 AD, about a generation after Jesus, something significant happened for the Jewish people. Rome, once and for all, came into Jerusalem. They destroyed the city and they destroyed the temple. So you've got Jesus, kind of the late, the mid 30s AD. And then you've got 70 AD, a generation later, Rome comes in and they destroy the temple and they destroy Jerusalem. Why is this significant? Because the temple was the center of Jewish life. It was their power. It was their authority. It was their religion. It was a sign of God's presence and God's forgiveness and God's healing and God's closeness to the world. And that's all destroyed. And so in 70 AD, they sit there going, what do we have? But that's what Jesus was pointing to all along. Their systems were crumbling. They were living by the sword, so they would die by the sword. All right, what does all this historical stuff have to do with us? The children of Israel had forgotten that they were originally called in their weakness, not in their strength. Abraham was called in the fact that he couldn't have kids. God said, I'm gonna do something in you in your weakness. Moses was called with his mixed up identity and his running away, way out in the desert. And he says, God says, I'm going to use you in your weakness. That's how God works. Not through strength and power and domination and manipulation, but through the surrendering of weakness. Weakness becomes strength on holy ground. They were not called to separate themselves from the world and destroy their enemies, but in their weakness to be a light to all nations. So this gospel text seems pretty bleak. <laughs> it's a calling out of God's people saying, you've refused to lay down your systems on which you've built your lives. You refuse to trust the kingdom of God in Jesus. But here's the beauty of the story. Where Israel failed, Christ was faithful. Where the Jewish leaders had forgotten their calling and their identity, Jesus lived it out. He was the light of the world. He was and is the salt of the earth. Jesus embodied a different kind of kingdom, one where weakness in our eyes becomes strength on the holy ground of the cross and the tomb. To the outside world, crucifixion looked like failure. It was the ultimate sign of weakness. But on the cross, Jesus robbed sin and death of its power. What looked like weakness was a different kind of strength. Dwight Peterson was a professor of theology at Eastern University. That's up in Philadelphia, I think. He became really sick at age 50. And he died at age 54 with complications from a, what's called a pressure ulcer. But four years before his death, he gave the commencement speech at Eastern with the title, Choosing Weakness. And he said that the illness caused him to think really deeply about the subject of weakness because he felt weak. He felt like he couldn't do much on his own power. Much of his later life was lived in complete weakness and vulnerability, okay? Like everything he had to be cared for constantly. He said this, he said, here's what I think. I think weakness is a Christian virtue. 
something we ought to aspire to as followers of Jesus. And I suspect if your ears are anything like mine, that sounds a bit odd. He goes on to say, after all, in the world we live in, strength is the greatest virtue, the thing to which we're taught to aspire. So we generally present ourselves in the best possible light, which is to say we try really hard to show ourselves to be strong, independent, in control of our own lives and those of others. Anybody do that? No, you guys just all perfectly reflect the way of Jesus. Don't let them see you sweat, we're told. Even paper towels are presented as strong. You've seen those comparisons when the strong paper towel holds together during a cleanup, but the weak paper comes apart, he says. There's even one brand of paper towel that features a heavily muscled guy in a flannel shirt on the front of the package. In a world where even paper towels have to be strong, it's hard not to laud weakness, or it's hard to laud weakness. We all know that strength is good, weakness is not. Vulnerability is threatening. It's embarrassing. But Peterson says he can't count how many times a medical professional had entered his room and said, Mr. Uh, Peterson, when was your last bowel movement? That's weakness, right? He had an ulcer on his buttocks and had many times where they would turn him on his side while eight to 10 people looked at it and said, what do you think? That's vulnerability, isn't it? Peterson says, no one, certainly no one in his right mind would choose weakness over strength. And yet, what if that's the problem? What if it's a problem that most of us would choose strength over weakness? If we were to choose weakness, if we were to embrace vulnerability, we might turn out to be a bit more like Jesus. The cross that we're supposed to take up and follow him, it wasn't a metaphor for him. He was publicly and humiliatingly executed on a cross. He says, second, if we were to choose weakness, if we were to embrace vulnerability, we might be able to receive more grace, gracefully. Peterson says that when you're weak, you often believe this lie that you don't have any choices in life. That's not true. Your choices are limited. Sometimes your choices seem inconsequential, but you have choices. In fact, he said during his stay in the hospital, he had only one real job, lie in the bed until his wound healed. That was his job. He could just do that. That's all that he could do. And he did for several months. The times were bleak. He didn't have many choices, but he did have choices. He decided, he made the choice to receive care gracefully and to be thankful for each person who entered his room. Wow. And the third and final reason to embrace weakness and vulnerability is that we might be able to give it more faithfully, Peterson says. We often see giving as a sign of strength, of accomplishment. I've given something because I'm strong and I've done this. We show what we have. But Peterson suggests the best kind of giving comes out of weakness because we acknowledge our own brokenness, our own inability. My giving to you is not going to fix you. I'm not the strong man who comes in and just makes everything better. No, I'm giving you out of my weakness. I'm trusting in that vulnerability. And yet in doing that, we see a glimpse of who Christ is. So for us today, in, in what ways might God be calling you to embrace your weakness in order for him to shine through? Perhaps you spent much of your life trying to prove yourself that you know what you're talking about, 
that you know you've got all the answers, you've got it all figured out, you're the perfect father, the perfect mother, the perfect at your job, you know everything, and, and if you don't, you'll just BS your way through it, right? <laughs> Maybe that's your, been your life. I had a couple things in my life that tested me this week as part of, our, uh, part of my formation. As it was evident to me about midweek this week, and you guys may not fully experience this. This may be a pastor kind of thing, but I knew that this Sunday, that today, there would, there would be only a handful of us here this morning. Okay, I say only, I'm trying not to say only, <laughs> but, but there would be a handful of us this morning. And that's with spring break, with nice weather, with some other things that are going on. Um, and that's always hard for me. When I get to midweek and I go, man, there's going to be a ton of people gone this weekend. And I start to internalize it. And I think there's something that reflects on me about that. And, you know, all these kind of things. And, but I felt challenged in that as part of my own Lenten formation, that God encouraged me to embrace this Sunday and embrace this moment. And the opportunities that I don't always have, that I get to talk to each of you specifically and even at length, if we get the opportunity today, no pressure on that or anything. But, um, but to get to know you guys better, which is something that we don't always get to do. Um, I embrace the rhythms of Sunday after Sunday, when there are lots of people here, when there are few people here, and to remember that it is God who builds his church. It's not Preston's strength. In fact, God builds his church through our weakness. And then I told the volunteers this morning this, but on the way here, we were listening to, we try to listen to the worship set in the car. And Lucy always holds me accountable on this. I was trying to listen to a podcast on the way to church this morning. She said, I thought we only listened to worship music on Sundays. And I was like, you're right. And so I turned to the set list and we started listening to that. And I Surrender All came on. And Lucy's in the back seat just belting this song at the top of her lungs. And I didn't even know she knew that old song, I Surrender All. It's not like we sing it around the house a lot. And she, but she knew it somehow. And it made me think in the rhythms that we do of Sunday after Sunday after Sunday showing up, some things have happened in her heart. Some things have been formed in her and been shaped in her to the point where she wants to belt out a song about surrender to Jesus. Wow. Many of us try to spend our lives trying to hide our weakness and our sin and our temptation. But what if those are the very places where God wants to show himself through your life? Your painful past, your anxiety, your illness, your family drama, maybe those aren't just things you have to deal with on the way to God's purpose for your life. Maybe God is working his purpose in the midst of those things. We have a choice. Are we gonna embrace worldly strength, the pursuit of money, sex, power, control? Or are we gonna take the path of vulnerability and allow God to change us on holy ground? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are not the God who looks down from heaven and sees if we've got our act together before you come near that you are the God who has chosen us in weakness, that your kingdom has come through self-sacrificial love. Thank you that you don't dominate or control us into faith. But Lord, thank you that you've offered yourself humbly. That you've offered a better way. I pray for the strength today for each of us to embrace our weakness, those places where we know we're not, that we, we've missed it, or that we're not enough in this way, that we need you. 
We are dependent on you. And I pray for the eyes to see the places where your grace has shown up. Lord, we love you. We trust you today. We put our life in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.